Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the Business and Leadership Forum and your host for today's program, virtual program, which is entitled The New Corporation, Creating an Economic System That Works for All. You know, ever since Jamie Dimon's Business Roundtable and uh, the issuing of a statement last year about the need to pay attention to other stakeholders, such as the communities that companies had or the employees, rather than just their stockholders. The question of stakeholder versus stockholder primacy has been coming up here at the Business and Leadership Forum. Discussions you can find in the past um, include from the advertising agencies, from academics and consultants, from executives at corporations such as Airbnb. So we were extremely happy when we learned of Joel Backen and Jennifer Abbott's efforts over the years to examine this topic by focusing on the corporation as books, as films, and here they are to introduce their new film, The New Corporation and Its Ideas. And here's a copy of Joel's book. The Commonwealth Club is happy to act as a bookstore for you today, if you would like. The two filmmakers, Jen Abbott and Joel Backen, are here today with Liz Davis, Dean of the School of Economics and Administration at St. Mary's College of California, and Kevin McGarry, Associate Professor, Attorney, and Director of the Alphenwork Center for Responsible Business. Tonight, we'll be discussing corporate responsibility. Is it possible to do good by doing well? as corporations like to say, or are there barriers? Is it just greenwashing? What are the barriers? What are the opportunities during these times? What's going on with corporations? Do they say what they are, do they do what they say? If not, how come? We'll take up these topics. First, we wanna take a moment for introductions for the panelists and then play the film trailer for you for the new corporation, their new documentary that's just about to be released in the U.S. As we have a conversation about the new corporation, I invite you to post questions in your YouTube chat on the Commonwealth Club channel, and we will try to take them up a little bit later on. I also encourage you to bring an activist attitude to your listening. How can this topic inspire you in your own life to be and do? Do more, do better, empower others. Here at the start of the new administration in the U.S., President Biden said today, don't tell me things can't change. Since the Commonwealth Club has gone 100% online, virtual, we also invite you to become members for all um, now, not only for San Francisco, but also in the U.S. or around the world. We have a $10 per month membership. Check it out on our website. We've been featuring artists as part of our business and leadership forum this past year. Theater actors, singers from Broadway, 
Amanda Gorman, interestingly enough, who some of you may have met today, as America's Poet Laureate. And now, these two filmmakers. We are delighted to have you. Thanks for coming. We're, uh, the Business and Leadership Forum is super excited to have this discussion. Uh, Jennifer Abbott, can we start with you? Will you introduce yourself? Especially tell us what is the passion that brings you here? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this event and for everybody uh, for joining in. My name is Jennifer Abbott. I'm a Sundance and Genie award-winning filmmaker. Uh, I do all kinds of things in the filmmaking process, um, direct, edit, write, produce, uh, do sound design as well. And uh, some of my films are uh, The, Co the Corporation, um, written by Joel Bakken and, and co-directed with Mark Akbar, A Cow at My Table, Us and Them, I Am, The New Corporation, The Unfortunately Necessary Sequel, and released at the same time, The Magnitude of All Things, which is about the uh, psychological and emotional dimensions of the climate crisis. Uh, in terms of what motivates me, uh, I think that I'm, ultimately very interested in contributing to uh, essential public discourse about some of the most pressing social, political and environmental issues of our day. Uh, I think ever since our first film, The Corporation was the Occupy movement, I've really deeply understood how much engaging media can contribute to uh, creating uh, or pushing forward a progressive agenda and also creating a more compassionate, just and, and livable world. So that would be my motivation uh, and why I've been doing what I do for the last 25 years. Joel Backen, you've written two books. You're introducing your second film on this topic. Why? What about your background do you want us to know? What drives your interest in this topic? Well, I've been, uh, for most of my life, uh, a social critic. I grew up during the Vietnam War. I was around uh, nine or 10 years old at the time, but my babysitters, uh, many of them were involved in the movement. My parents were professors at uh, Michigan State University. Uh, we ended up moving to Canada. I often describe myself as a, as a nine-year-old premature draft dodger because uh, part of the reason my family wanted to move to Canada was because there were two, two boys in the family. Um, so I chose law school. I, uh, I got a Rhodes Scholarship, so I went to Oxford and did graduate work at Harvard, and I clerked for the Chief Justice of Canada, uh, and then landed up as a law professor at the University of British Columbia. Uh, where I specialize in economic law uh, and U.S. and Canadian constitutional law. Uh, as you mentioned, I've written two books on the corporation. I've also written books on constitutional rights, on, on children's issues, uh, around commercialism and, and so forth. But I guess what, what drives me ultimately uh, is a desire to engage with the broader public. It's why I uh, write these kinds of books for a, a broad public audience and, and make films, uh, as well as doing traditional scholarship, uh, and to engage around uh, what I consider the absolutely crucial importance of being very conscious of being democratic, that as citizens, we, we can't just take it for granted. And I think if we've learned anything 
in the last few days and weeks and the last four years uh, is that it's that democracy has to be uh, a constant conscious struggle, uh, not something to be taken for granted, because as soon as we do, we'll let it slip. And I was quite inspired by uh, the inaugural words of, uh, of Joseph Biden today, because in effect, uh, that's what he was saying. Uh, we've been through a, a period uh, over the last little while where it really felt that democracy was slipping away. And we were feeling that acutely over the last week or so. Uh, but here we are, uh, still standing. And, um, and I think the job now is to just deepen our commitments uh, to uh, the democratic way of being, uh, which is what drives all of my work. Thanks for being here. Uh, my two co-conspirators, uh, Liz Davis and, and Kevin McGarry, have been really uh, great in organizing this. Uh, Liz, my question to you is that you seem to have a pretty long history and interest in social responsibility. I was interested if you could tell us a little about your background. And also, what brings you to want to work with students in this area? Uh, thank you. Uh, and thanks so much for hosting this tonight. This is a really, really important topic. As a dean of a business school at St. Mary's, every year we have the opportunity to really have an impact with over a thousand uh, business students that we actually educate and put into the marketplace. And our, our tagline uh, at St. Mary's is to think globally but lead responsibly. But my, my career started long ago in the business world, and I found myself as a CEO in the late 80s and early 90s uh, in the field of biotechnology. Uh, and one of the things that really struck me at the time uh, was the concerns that I had over business practices that were going on in the field. And I had been working as an executive uh, for quite a few years. Fortunately, along the way, uh, I did my doctoral work at the Wharton School in strategy. And uh, at a certain point as a CEO, I actually felt a responsibility to sort of step back uh, out of business practice and really begin to grapple with some of the ethical issues that I was seeing in the real world. And that drove me into academia. So much of my academic career has been working as a strategy professor, trying to have impact uh, on sort of the mindset and this mind shift uh, from shareholder return to how do we produce greater stakeholder value? And so this topic is not just timely, uh, it's essential uh, for all of us to have the dialogue. I promise we'll get into that some more later, but I have a question for Kevin first. I know you direct the Elfenwork Center for Responsible Business at St. Mary's. I know you and Joel are both trained attorneys. We'll come back to this later, as I was saying, but I'm curious, what is the thinking about this topic that ignites your interest? So I, uh, interestingly, I actually started my teaching, I guess, career journey, so to speak, with uh, teaching economics. My background started in economics. Um, and, uh, and I went into law to marry law and economics, kind of similar it sounds like Joel's background to some extent. And uh, I remember my very first uh, 
principles of micro macro courses I taught. Um, I actually showed Joel and Jennifer the first corporation film in that course. It was a year after it came out. And, um, and at that time, I was already quite interested in interactions between business and human rights uh, and seeing ways that we could um, basically find a way to come to advocate for those things while still maintaining as best as possible a capitalist system uh, and a free market oriented system. So in that sense, I'm, I am very oriented towards free market uh, capitalist system, but trying to find ways that we can reconcile that with some of the complications that it creates. Um, and so, so that led me to this, I'm, I'm kind of an outlier, I guess you could say in business academia, where I am not a fan of the stakeholder approach and we'll get into that, uh, for many reasons. Uh, and, and, uh, and so that's, um, that's also one of the things that attracted me to this is I, I like to have diversity of thought and perspective in academia. Uh, I encourage that. And that's where also, I think it's important to have conversations about things other approaches that could exist or new models that we could develop beyond this whole stakeholder approach as this be all end all. You write that you had the film in the can, that you were done with your edit, and then uh, you discovered COVID and you went back in. How did you decide to do that? Tell us from a filmmaking point of view what that was like for you. Sure. Uh, so we locked picture uh, the first time uh, prior to the pandemic and the lockdown, the first, you know, back in March. Uh, and it's not as if for a second we pretend to be a film that was covering current events. Uh, at, but, you know, the pandemic was, uh, you know, it's a moment of such significance that we actually broke picture lock, which is a big deal if you're a filmmaker. Um, it's a real no-no uh, to include the pandemic. And, and there were several reasons for that. Uh, you know, one, of course, was, I think, you know, the pandemic really laid bare the injustices of the system. We were exploring inequality and in the corporate, corporate relationship to uh, creating vast income inequality. And of course, the pandemic laid uh, that very, uh, uh, even more apparent than it was before. If you did not have very much in society, you were likely going to suffer more given the pandemic. So we really felt important to include that. Um, and the flip side really was it also uh, provided a, a model because in many ways, the pandemic showed us our humanity. It showed us a, a way of being in the world that was contrary to the neoliberal um, definition of what it meant to be human. You know, we're not only competitive, we, we aren't only self-interested, we actually do at our best have a, a real deep communitarian spirit. And, 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 and so I think in some instances, certainly not all, it, it, it showed us that. And so of course we wanted to in, include it. Uh, so we uh, broke picture lock and did uh, a series of additional interviews and then thought, okay, now we've finished the film, uh, broke open the bottle of wine for the second time. And then of course, uh, George Floyd was uh, brutally murdered. And uh, what, you know, again, it was an instance, you know, because it ignited 
you know, the largest civil rights movement in history, uh, because we felt that the uh, that it was being so effective at challenging uh, notions like, for example, how we allocate public funds. Why does all this money go to the police and military and so little is found for schools, for healthcare? Uh, because it exposed so clearly the racist roots of 21st century extractive capitalism in colonization and in slavery. Um, you know, and you know, probably more than anything for me, what it was, was authentic hope. You know, we had been working, uh, there's a lot of pressure when you're making a film like this to be hopeful. And, you know, I think hope can be a form of denial in and of itself. Mm. But Black Lives Matter and the movement it, it ignited was so authentically hopeful and it had this solidity and this weight that to me it really changed the whole emotional arc of the film uh, and it made it a much more powerful film because we could end on this moment where people rose up against systemic power in effective ways and so um, it was again very important that we uh, include it. We actually only had, we, Joel and I and Peter Rowick, uh, who edited our film, you know, we made the case to our producers and we actually only had two weeks uh, to do that, uh, which we did. And so then we locked picture for the second time and the final time, opened the bottle of wine. That was the last one. So that's why we, we did what we did there. Well, tracking back even earlier, you made a second film. And I was wondering, like you, the, uh, the two of you guys had teamed up to do the first film. Uh, and then, I'm, I mean, uh, in your film, in the documentary, this one, there's a lot of actions from corporations that call out toxicity, like how they treat nature uh, in opposition to what they say they do. Um, coal in the Barrier Reef. Uh, pipelines and indigenous land. Um, Vandana Shiva points out corporations are killing nature. We are nature. What we eat is nature. We're poisoning ourselves. Is that why you had to make a second movie, you and Joel? Well, for, for me, actually, you know, I, I think there's another very important point that we make related to the pandemic, which is a much overlooked um, narrative, which is, of course, that the, the pandemic, um, you know, COVID-19 plus a whole bunch of other uh, emerging diseases of the last uh, couple of decades is a zoonotic disease, meaning that it originated in another species and it, it jumped species to us. And, and that is also tied to the destruction of the natural world, uh, because as our habitat as habitat is destroyed, it pushes other species closer to human civilization, providing the opportunities for those kinds of viruses to jump species. So there's there's that element too that we felt very uh, was very important to include. Um, you know, if you watch the new corporation and and the corporation, you probably will know I I'm not a big fan. <laughs> of 21st century corporate capitalism. And to be honest, I'm actually not really even that big a fan of capitalism. You know, I do feel there's a place for markets in society and a place for corporations in society. But, uh, you know, my um, 
point of view, having studied this for several decades, is is more of a critic, and more, uh, you know, I really feel that that there is it, structurally, it's there's it's it's designed in a very flawed way. It's and it and it's not. Uh, it is in many ways inherently destructive, and and we can talk more about that. And I'm sure other panelists panelists have more to say about that. But you know, I I really um, am very very fearful uh, related to this moment in time. I don't think that we can over we can overstate uh, the case for the gravity. Of, and the numerous as existential crises we find ourselves embedded within today, uh, most notably related to the environment and the natural world, of course, uh, climate destabilization. And I will absolutely put uh, a significant amount of blame for that situation on capitalism and on corporations. So yes. It was essential for us to make the film because of because of that in part. Joel, I'm curious. In the last 20 years, there's been a lot of lip service devoted to doing well by doing good. Is it just legal structures of the corporation that prevent meaningful change? I mean, there's things like B Corp. Well, I mean, I think one of the points that we make in the first project and I make in the book, and it's what actually drew me to all of this, is the unique legal uh, nature of the firm, of the corporation. Uh, when I teach corporate law, I teach my students that uh, directors and managers must, they have a legal obligation to make decisions that are in the best interests of the company. And the company is basically a, an artificial person that embodies the corporate, namely the collective of the shareholders. So the, the magic of corporate law is it turns a collective into an individual. The individual is the corporation. The second magical thing corporate law does is it imposes on the managers and directors an obligation always to act in the best interests of the corporation. And courts have typically define that as being advancing shareholder value. That is the nature of the institution that we're working with when we're working with publicly traded corporations. And the one thing I agree, I mean, I remember I, I interviewed Milton Friedman for, uh, the first, uh, for the first film, and we had a great time. Uh, I gave him some Canadian maple syrup as a present, I remember at the end, but we had a great time agreeing on the idea that um, corp that corporate social responsibility was a problem. He became quite famous for uh, writing in the New York Times that corporate social responsibility is not a great thing. But what it, what but the the sort of next statement that he would make when he said that was that's because it's democratic governments that should be deciding things like how the environment is regulated, what uh, workers, uh, how they should be protected. Now, Milton Friedman and I certainly disagreed on the extent to which democratic government should do that and how far they should intervene. But the agreement was that corporations, as they're legally constructed, can't and really shouldn't be doing that. Whatever else you say about them, they are not democratic institutions, except for the citizens that make them up, which is their shareholders. So that creates a fundamental problem 
And I think what drew me to doing this second film and writing the second book was that I noticed a shift taking place about 10 years ago. And the shift went something like this. It was corporations no longer just saying, we're going to try to be better now. We're going to try to be socially responsible now. But saying more like, as was mentioned uh, by Liz at the beginning, more like Jamie Dimon and the Business Roundtable, this is our fundamental mission. This is baked into our DNA and our very structure. And so I started to research that. And, you know, we even went to Davos and uh, met with Klaus Schwab and, and, and Richard Edelman and all kinds of great people to talk about this idea. And what I realized was my initial intuition was this is actually this attempt to be good, to be better, to bake social conscience into our very DNA is actually a play for power. And it's actually a very dangerous thing for democracy, because what it is, is it's corporations saying, we are good now, so we can govern. We can take over your water systems and schools. We don't need to be regulated. We don't need spending programs. We don't need to pay taxes. And so you take somebody like Jamie Dimon and you actually follow him around. And during the Trump administration, while he's really criticizing Trump and everything about Charlottesville, he's also with his organization, the Business Roundtable, in there lobbying like crazy for deregulation of the environment, deregulation of workers, uh, for privatization, for tax cuts, even more tax cuts than Trump was providing in 2017. So there seems to be this twinning of the idea that on the one hand, corporations are good, and on the other hand, government should be diminished in terms of their social governance roles. And the sort of uh, uh, the, the sum of that equation is, therefore, corporations should play greater roles in governing society and democratic governments, and thereby democracy less. I caught up with Richard Edelman in the main square at Davos, and I said to him, so what happens to democracy? if corporations, as he had just told me, should start filling the voids that retreating governments are leaving. And corporations are good actors now, so they can do that. What happens to democracy? And Richard Edelman, who is a champion of purpose, of social responsibility, of the good cop corporation, looked me, or at least the camera, straight in the eye and said, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe in the power of the marketplace. And to me, that's when the penny dropped that this whole sort of Davos, new corporation sustainability, this whole push to make corporations better is really a response to a belief that democracy can't be made better and that we need to effectively substitute democratic governance with corporate governance. That's what the book and to a large extent the film are about. Before Kevin or Liz jump in, because I'm sure they have thoughts about what you just said, I wanted to follow up with one quick thing, which is um, to ask if you think government can work with these tech companies or these big public companies to slow that spread of lies. So I think one of the really dangerous things right now is the degree to which um, uh, democratic discourse uh, effectively takes place on for-profit um, platforms and the degree to which 
the tech companies and the sort of network effects business models that they use, which take them towards monopolistic behavior. It's almost built into their business models um, are difficult to regulate, uh, partly for technological reasons, partly for um, uh, international reasons that they don't operate within national boundaries. <laughs> Having said that, I don't ascribe to the view that it's impossible to regulate tech. Uh, and that may mean uh, sort of becoming quite serious about antitrust. That may mean uh, breaking companies up. That may mean uh, that one company can't own another in the same way they have. I mean, let's not forget in 1911, the Supreme Court uh, basically broke up Standard Oil under the, uh, the Sherman Act. So it's not that this isn't part of our history. Teddy Roosevelt knew that monopolies were a threat not only to competition and innovation, but were a threat to democracy. And this is probably a good time to say that um, uh, Twitter has actually banned the promotion of our film, uh, which I think is really quite something and quite concerning. Um, oh. they, they banned, they have not permitted us to buy advertising on Twitter because they see us as, well, I'm not sure what, all kinds of reasons have been offered by them in, in the correspondence. Um, but uh, it's, it's very, very disturbing uh, that, um, well, not the least of which is that we're now in the same class as Donald Trump. We've been banned from Twitter. Um, but anyways, I, I think that that just shows that the difficulty in having so much of our of our democratic life basically on platforms that aren't democratically accountable. So I, I'd like to jump in and, and you know, really talk about, uh, you know, sort of a more hopeful position uh, on this whole thing. And I think both films really give us the perspective of, you know, the, the corporation and the rise of the modern corporation, not, uh, which has not been the most positive sort of picture that we can paint today. But I would ask the question, um, you know, how do we get to this point uh, as well? And if we look at history, uh, it isn't just legislation alone that's produced these kinds of effects, nor is it legislation alone that's produced the kind of mindset uh, that we have in the potential corporate nation state uh, of today. So from my perspective, uh, and an educational one uh, at that, is, you know, it is an educational responsibility to educate uh, the democratic citizen and the business person of today. So if we're propagating uh, the mindset of the modern corporation and passing on the heritage of this kind of um, perspective of the corporation, then every business school in the nation has a responsibility to really examine their curriculum what they're teaching in the classroom, who they're sending into the marketplace. Uh, and, you know, herein lies some of perhaps the solution for structural change. So it's not just legislation. It's the law schools and you're a law school professor. So you're in the classroom. 
right? Kevin's in the classroom. I'm in the classroom. Uh, what are we teaching uh, business students today about, you know, how to manage an organization? What are your responsibilities? So I think uh, it has to be a multi sort of strategic approach to, you know, dealing or building solutions uh, for what we see uh, in the marketplace. It won't change otherwise. There's a question that's coming in from YouTube apropos to that, which is uh, that he, this particular um, Michael Stravelich, um, apologies for my pronunciation of your name, I, he says that he's used clips from the corporation in his university teaching. Have you filmmakers thought about creating or co-creating with faculty modules that could be integrated with class discussions and assignments? I see the educators nodding their heads. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, we we did that with the last film and, and quite successfully uh, we had uh you know questions and things like that um i think we'll we will do that definitely with this film and you know people i i urge uh my colleagues in the academy to uh, assign my book to your students it's out yes. there right <laughs> the film great the 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 film will have to kind of run its course first with um you know the the normal distribution channels, and then we will probably set up that kind of modulized uh, uh, breakdown of the film with with questions after each, and sort of curated um, uh, kinds of exercises and all of that. Uh, and I really look forward to that because I think these are, especially today, students are very visually yep. oriented, and yep. um, and so these are are definitely good teaching tools. Yeah, so I just want to jump in now and add a little bit, uh, you know, very similar to what Joel was saying, you know, he teaches law as well. Uh, and so thinking also about what Liz mentioned about what we're teaching in the classroom and everything like that. I mean, it, I part of, I think, the issue that we're facing today with this and the whole stakeholder approach and all that is I think there is this mythological construct of what people want corporations to be rather than what they actually are. Um, and I think part of the education that we need to get across is what corporations actually are, uh, what their laws and limitations are. Uh, and then we can then revisit having a conversation on maybe what people want them to be. Um, and that's, that's where I think really the conversation needs to be um, because otherwise we get this uh, stakeholder approach which, like I said, I'm critical of because even, you know, looking at a remark from the director of the Biden Institute for Corporate Governance, um, he criticized as well, saying, you know, a manager who's accountable to all is accountable to none, effectively. Um, and uh, when you have multiple stakes and you have to be, you know, depending on which version variation on stakeholder approach you're taking, um, that kind of creates, opens the door for a lot of other issues as well in terms of managerial accountability uh, and then thinking about the, the shareholders and everything like that. Um, so I think uh, when I, in terms of regulation and, and when we get to that issue, I think it's a matter of trying to figure out the extent of what sort of regulations we want to do. Because if we leave to, if we go to over-regulation, then we're opening the door for crony capitalism, which is what I think a lot of people start to think about when they think about the negative imagery of 
uh, capitalism, where you have extensive client politics and regulatory capture and rent seeking going on as a result of over-regulation or regulation that preferences certain industries over others. So I think we also need to be pretty careful when we start talking about how we want to approach regulation. I'm not saying regulation across the board is bad, but I think it needs to be strategically considered in how we want to approach after everyone understands what the current state of what capitalism is with the context of our existing corporate law, and then going from there. Now, we have made strides in the sense of you know, the benefit corporation, uh, but even then, the benefit corporation still is based on this idea of multiple constituencies that they have to be beholden to, which then goes back to that issue of who are they, who are they ultimately responsible for, the managers and the directors of that corporate entity. Um, so it's a step in the right direction, perhaps, uh, but I think, once again, it goes back to this idea of making sure there's clarity that everyone understands what the current state of corporate law is and what limits it sets, and then having a dialogue on if people really want to change that, you know, what are ways maybe we can go about doing that effectively. So this uh, group, my, uh, the Business and Leadership Forum, has always tried to spend mm, one-third of the time talking about the obstacles and two-thirds of the time talking about the solutions. So I don't know if we can mathematically carve it up that way tonight, but certainly there's information, there's questions coming in from our YouTube channel about talking about solutions and what that might look like. Um, there's a question about um, the investment side. If you save and invest money and store value for retirement, if not in the public stock markets, then where does that where does that go? We well, can... I mean, sure. I mean, there's a whole sort of ESG movement, so that that doesn't yeah. really fully answer the question, but it does say you can make decisions about okay. sort of somewhat better versus somewhat worse places to put. Uh, your retirement money. But I think, you know, the, the question is really um, more about the extent to which most ordinary people who don't have uh, substantial pensions, who don't have jobs where they get major pensions, um, how are they who don't have the question of where are they going to put their money? We should be living in a society where they don't have to worry about falling through the cracks when they can no longer work. To me, that's a much more important question. Um, we should, you know, th there are uh, answers like in Norway, they have this, this large kind of uh, rainy day fund or whatever you want to call it. There, there are various public vehicles for investment that governments can set up. That you, we don't have to have a stock market investment as the only possibility. Um, but I think it's it's a it's a it's a, a really important question uh, about where uh, how we protect people when they are past their working lives uh, and and are in retirement. Uh, many 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 of whom uh, don't even have the luxury to ask that question. Yeah. So there was. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I just want to jump in a little bit because ESG is something that I I deal with, we do some stuff with that for the center as well. And uh, Norway's fund, uh, the government pension fund global, 
They actually have an extensive council of ethics that does a lot of rulings associated with ESG investment. And I've written a bit about that. Uh, and the interesting thing is I think the ESG movement has its critics, sure. Uh, but I think it also has its benefits in the sense of it being a kind of a market-oriented approach. Investors are choosing what to do with their money uh, and making decisions on environmental, social, and governance factors associated with the companies that they're you know, investing in. And so in that sense, um, the ESG movement, I think, has, has been beneficial in promoting some more of this responsible business activity uh, using that sort of investor-based mechanism. And interestingly, one of the things that you note that you mentioned in, in your film and in your book, I, I read the book as well, uh, was had to had to deal with taxation. And so I'm a tax attorney. Uh, and uh, and and the interesting thing is there's we're starting to see also in the ESG movement, um, particularly among institutional investors, pension funds and stuff like that, are starting to actually give enhanced scrutiny to uh, excessive strategic corporate tax planning, so to speak. Mm -hmm which could be viewed as a euphemism for, uh, you know, aggressive tax avoidance. And so, so you're starting to see that creep into the ESG movement as well. Um, and I don't really know where else you're going to see a response to that concern about the tax avoidance issue. Yet you have investors now in, on the market-based side who are making their investment decisions based on that. So I think that's, uh, that's an interesting, maybe move in the right direction for people who are interested and concerned about these issues. I'm wondering, there's about, there's a whole lot of other questions coming in about branches. So maybe we uh, set aside this particular branch for a moment and ask about other parts of the government's relationship with corporations. Uh, for example, um, is there a way that from Serhoya? Um, can governments effectively partner and leverage with large businesses without having that cozy lobbying factor? Oh, I get, you know, I, I, I can, I feel I come from a different place in the sense that I feel very much um, motivated by just how extraordinary a moment in time this is. And we simply have to start to understand how dire our situation and we can't continue with business as usual. And so for me, uh, you know, the question is, you know, can corporations and governments partner uh, to do good? I would think uh, reframing that to ask a question about you know, what is the most ideal relationship between governments and corporations? Like, how can, you know, how can we boost the demo, our aspiration for democracy so that it brings out the best mechanisms and, and best um, social result that, you know, corporations can take as they undertake their activities. So, you know, I just feel like, you know, it's similar to the question around investment. Like for me, it's just much too urgent a moment in time not to start thinking a little bit differently, out of the box, asking really big and deep questions. And um, so I'm, I'm not one really to ask questions about 
uh, proceeding uh, with business as usual. I'm, I'm much more um, interested in reframing the whole conversation and really looking at alternatives because what we have done, I'm afraid has really failed. If we judge by uh, the number of existential crises we currently face. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would add to that maybe a sort of more in between places. I always think about it uh, from the perspective, obviously, of, of law and, and policy. And when you're thinking about it from the perspective of law and policy, I think you have to think about what is the corporation's place in that? Is it about being a partner? with government or is it about being a subject of democratic government? And that's a profound question. And so the way I like to look at it is, and it, it's, it picks up some of what Kevin was saying. I, I like to, and I talk about this in my classes, I like to see the corporation, it's kind of like a lawnmower. There are certain things it does really well. If you wanna cut the grass, it does that really well. Corporations were created in the late 19th century uh, as vehicles to pool the large uh, uh, masses of capital that were needed to build railways and to do other things that this invention of the steam engine and industrialization allowed for. You know, no longer were you just doing a mill on the floss. You were doing massive enterprise. You needed massive pools of capital. And the corporation was an absolute genius device for raising that. So it's basically a financing tool, just in the same way that a lawnmower cuts the grass. But you need to regulate the lawnmower. You know, if you let it go and you're not looking, it'll it'll take off and it'll cause all kinds of problems. It you need to make sure it doesn't make too much noise that uh, ruins the neighborhood and and ruins people's hearing. And you need to know that the the lawnmower has to stay in its lane. That it's limited in terms of what it can do. You don't want to use it to make your smoothie in the morning. You don't want to use it to, to give yourself a haircut or to vacuum the living room rug. A lawnmower is a tool. It has limits. It has a purpose. And it's very good at doing those things. And I would say the same of markets. Within democratic theory, we think of things like markets, like corporations, as policy tools. They are not ends in themselves. They are not partners with government. They are policy tools that do things really well. So some things and other things they don't and they can cause problems. So when Kevin talks about overregulation leading to rent seeking, leading to crony capitalism, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, regulation is the only uh, tool that we as citizens have to represent our democratic views in terms of how corporations and the economy are run. Regulation is, when it's working best, a manifestation and reflection of democratic citizenship. That's what it's supposed to be. Now, the system has checks and balances. It works pretty well when it's working. It could work a lot better. It could be more accountable. It could be more beholden to scientific uh, evidence. And it could be a lot more robust in tackling things like climate change, for example. That's not overregulation. That's necessity. Or we're not going to be here anymore. So, so my question is, how can we come up with the right mix of the things that corporations do well? They raise money well. They create incentives that lead to innovation well. And that markets do well. I don't want the government making my, my sodas. 
or my running shoes. You know, there are obviously there's there's an importance for a thriving private sector with markets and corporations. But the ultimate end of whatever mix we have to come up with is not to make the stock market go up, is not to fatten bottom lines long term or short term. It's not any of that. It's to ensure that A, we're being governed democratically, and B, the public good is being served as well as it can. So I agree with Jennifer, that mix of sort of markets, corporations, regulation, governance has to be put together in such a way the alchemy has to result in what is best for the public interest and what is best for democratic governance. And I think we've really lost sight of that because we see corporations in, in picking up on Kevin's point as it, in ways that, that aren't realistic about what they are or what they should be or what their role is in society. And I would add the same for markets. And we also succumb to the belief that markets and corporations are somehow uh, parts of nature, not things that we ourselves create through legislation and policy. So there's a lot of, and getting back to Liz's point, there's a lot of education needed. Uh, there's a lot of education needed on what is yep. in order for us to sort of really understand what needs to be and what can be and how we can move forward. So, so I feel that I agree with Elizabeth that, you know, we should talk about moving forward, but we have to talk about moving forward on the basis of analyses that are actually true. And that actually makes sense. Otherwise, we just go down, uh, we, we go down dead ends. And for, in, my, in my thinking, the B Corp is actually one of those dead ends. Yeah. Uh, but that's something we can get into if anybody wants to. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think we've reached a point where we have to, uh, you know, reframe the actual conversation. Um, and we've come to this point where we have enough stakeholder pressure so it is, as Jen says, a, a sort of mystical point in time where we have the opportunity to begin to address some of these bigger issues, given the stakeholder pressure that's really come to bear, whether it's the injustices with the Black Lives Matter movement or, you know, the Trump administration or, you know, what's happening across the, the U.S., and stakeholders, uh, so I am a proponent of stakeholders. I see a democratic society as the ultimate statement of stakeholder, you know, value. And the fact that we aren't sort of educating people, even to go into the public sector, <laughs> you know, says a lot about where we are at this point in time. Uh, but we do have the opportunity to frame those solutions and create the dialogue for that. So, uh, you know, I see this as a critical point in time where, you know, Biden says, don't tell me we can't change things. Um, so I'm an educator and I'm going to, to say yes. And it starts here. It starts at home and it starts uh, in the classroom. And when I think uh, this is my third deanship. When I think about the thousands of business students that I have put into the marketplace and my faculty have educated, you know, we have the opportunity to, you know, put a new army into the ranks uh, to make some of these changes. And I would also say that, you know, government can't do this alone. 
they can't do the course change alone. So I agree uh, with Joel that the lawnmower uh, can't get out of control because if it does, we have, you know, a, a, a yard that's absolutely shredded and we can't afford that now. Uh, we, we've reached a point where, you know, we need to turn the lawnmower off uh, and restructure uh, what its purpose is. Um, but that's true for government, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't just true for the corporation. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a, a rethinking the system structure uh, that we're in right now. And where better to start than dialogues like this and also dialogues with your students in the classroom? Um, because we we have that opportunity to create those solutions. Films like this, I mean, uh, really have visual impact. Um, and uh, so, you know, this is my educator speech, but I've been on the soapbox for decades uh, around these issues. So I feel very passionate about it. So I'm starting to hear a list. There's the teaching in educational settings there's educational opportunities in general. There's stakeholder pressure. One of our uh, questions coming in from YouTube says, what, a, what great timing this is at the moment because there's consumer activism playing out daily on social media platforms. Is there a way to get that kind of consumer activism to be another tool in that set. And then I would say uh, it seems like part of what we need to do is keep the lawnmower from running over your foot. Oh, about the consumer activism is that's actually one of the approaches that has been suggested as forget stakeholder approach, forget shareholder primacy. Let's do a consumer oriented approach. Um, which based on reading Joel's uh, book and everything, I don't think he's a big fan of. <laughs> um, and so, so that's, that's been considered one of the, you know, one of the other potential models is using consumers as activists, voting with their dollars, all that sort of stuff. But I think maybe I should hand it off to Joel because I know he probably has a lot to talk about that, some comments to make on that consumer capitalism model. I'll be very brief about it. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to uh, recycle your stuff and to try to, you know, buy electric vehicles and, eat, you know, buy organic food and, and support companies that are trying to do things a little bit better. I don't think that's necessarily bad, but there's a way in which, and there's a lot of academic work on this, there's a way in which that idea is pushed out as an alternative um, to public regulation and to actual legal obligations on the part of companies to do the the things that consumers are asking them to do, um, because ultimately consumers are fairly powerless uh, when it comes. They're not organized. They they don't have a way of sort of um, uh, organizing their power together. Uh, it's a good thing. It makes us feel better, and I think we're better people. And I do it to try to be a responsible consumer. I would never say that's a bad thing, but it's a fairly powerless thing. And I think we have a lot more power in our roles as citizens and that we really need to start thinking about citizen power. And to the extent that that seeing ourselves mainly as consumers gets in the way of that, 
uh, or is seems as a substitute for that, I think that's a problem. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately I'm biased. I'm, a, I'm an attorney, I'm a, I'm a law professor. I believe in rule of law. And one of the things that I really don't like seeing is all of these values that consumers, that corporations are saying are so important, but they're also saying, we don't want them to be legally regulated. We, we, we are in, in the same breadth. Jamie Dimon is talking about yes. how important equality is, and he's lobbying for lower taxes on his company okay. and lobbying for privatization. So, so to me, that's where we're at. If we want to sort of think intellectually about what is the crossroad we're at, I think okay. the crossroad is at, do we pursue democratic, legally mandatory uh, solutions to these problems like climate change and everything else? Or do we go a more voluntary social responsibility route? I think we can do both. And that's obviously a good thing. But the problem is that there tends to be a way in which championing the social responsibility consumer capitalism part is used as an argument so we don't really need government. And I think, and we don't really need democracy if we don't need government. That's what worries me. I would just add to that, that uh, I think that the focus on uh, consumption and individual consumption has really distracted us as well from our role as citizens, not uh, collectively, yep. and also taken our attention away from the system. So, uh, you know, I think there were some really great articles recently, uh, like the last several years, it's this conversation seems to have entered the public discourse. And, I, and there's one headline from The Guardian, you know, this is, you know, uh, neoliberalism has conned us into thinking, you know, we can save the world as individuals. And that's, uh, again, I would not for a second say don't, re you know, recycle or what have you, but I do think there's an underlying harm uh, and it has um, been in it. Ha that whole sentiment can have this destructive underbelly. So I, I just want to say one more thing. At the end of the day, I think really this all kind of circles back into everyone needs to start having a greater awareness as to what a corporation actually is, what their purpose of existence actually is. And then after everyone understands that, then we can start to have these other conversations I think more sincerely uh, and so everyone really knows what what's going on and I think that's that's my main criticism with the whole stakeholder approach and uh, and where Joel and I, I I agree with a lot of the things he says in that sense unfortunately we've we've reached the point in our conversation I mean it, the time has just flown by and we're leaving things on the table like um, citizens United and proxy voting systems and uh, tasty things about uh, corporate uh, cooperative ownerships and so on, that um, my apologies to our audience, we're not going to be able to touch on unless each of you wants to incorporate that into your last two minutes of what you would like to leave this conversation with all of us thinking about. Well, it's interesting that there was the question about Citizen United because uh, Steve Bannon was very, you know, involved in in, um, in all of that, and of course he was pardoned yesterday, as we know. Uh, I think I would just like to leave because I 
you know, watched, of course, the inauguration today. And, you know, certainly Joe Biden was not my uh, first pick, but I was deeply, deeply moved by his speech. And I felt there, you know, I really do feel that uh, there's pressures within government now in the United States that do seem to be pushing an authentically progressive agenda forward. And, you know, when, uh, you know, he spoke and referenced uh, vast inequality several times, uh, obviously um, systemic racism and also climate change and all of these things are intimately related. It goes without question to our economic system. So I guess I just want to say that today I felt uh, authentically very hopeful in terms of turning the tide and as painful and destructive as the last four years have been, I was even wondering whether, you know, a silver lining was, it showed us just how destructive uh, uh, the system is and also how vulnerable democracy is. And now, I, and I don't really think we would, we would have heard what we heard today. I mean, it goes without saying, but it just feels like the momentum to create change is there. And so for that um, today, I'm feeling very hopeful. Yeah, I, I share that hope. I, I think, that. you know, I, I share that hope. I, I We argue uh, in the film and I argue in the book that uh, that Donald Trump was was very much symptomatic of um, the sort of degradation of social solidarity in the United States, and the same is happening around the world. Democracy can't survive without social solidarity, and social solidarity can't survive without a modicum, a measure of social equality. I'm not saying everybody should be exactly the same, but nor can you have the kinds of massive gaps and leaving people behind uh, that we have. And I think one of the arguments that I make in the book and that we make in the film is part of the reason why we have that terrible inequality is because corporations have successfully big business through their various organizations, the US Chamber of Commerce and, and other organizations have successfully been on a campaign to attack the social state over the last 40 years. Now, I'm not laying Donald Trump completely at their doorstep. I'm not laying the horrible divisions that we have. I say we, I'm an American citizen, that we have in the United States today completely on their doorstep. But what I am saying is that we have allowed for a dismantling of systems that were designed to provide some measure of social security, some measure of social equality, some measure of inclusion, and some measure of social solidarity, at least enough to enable democracy to work. And I think we took them down to the point where democracy itself was threatened. And so I think we know that now. I think the Biden administration knows that. I think just generally, we the people have an understanding uh, that democracy takes more than simply giving everybody a vote. They also have to have the capacity 
to exercise that vote to participate in governments in governance in a, in a realistic way. And they're not going to have that if they're working three shifts, if their kids aren't in school, if they can't put food on the table. You can't have democracy without that. So I think democracy, and you know, you can, I mean, call me a socialist for saying this, but I don't think I am for saying this. There needs to be a social basis for political democracy to work. And we have to be careful to build that up and not to lose it again, because I, I think that is that is where we're at now. So it's an opportune moment, and I encourage the audience to take advantage of seeing the new corporation film and book. And now, Kevin and Liz, you get like a sentence more. What would you like to impart? Oh, this is the, the lightning round. Um, so thank you, Elizabeth. Um, you know, I, I agree with so much of what Jen and Joel have said. Um, and I think we're uh, poised at a moment in time where we really do have the opportunity to begin to affect some real structural change. Um, and I would add to that uh, that everybody in the room uh, really has a personal responsibility to c contribute uh, to that effective structural change, no matter where you are in society and no matter what your role is. Uh, as a citizen, uh, as a teacher, as a lawyer... You know, uh, I think we're, we're poised now uh, to begin to make that uh, effective structural change. We've seen the negative. Now we need to affect the positive outcomes, and we have the opportunity to do that. Thank you. Last word, Kevin. Okay. So, I, I mean, to wrap it off for me, my main thing is, as I mentioned, I think we need to get the message across. People need to recognize corporations for what they actually are, what their purpose is, then we need to come back. And I think it would also open their eyes more to some of the problems with the stakeholder approach um, as well. And then once we have all that, also realize and appreciate that capitalism is not a dirty word. It has a place in our democratic society um, and find ways forward to mesh capitalism. You know, they have conscious capitalism, all this, um, with ways forward to figure out what people actually want corporations to be all right, uh, maybe rather than what they perceive them to be um, now versus what they actually are legally, all right? Um, and I think once we get there, I think we can't really have a, a sincere conversation about change unless people really appreciate and understand the constraints that exist. And then they need to actually get the law changed to change what corporate entities obligations are to match more of what they want to uh, accomplish. And that's where you have that citizen engagement that I think Joel is referring to. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I, you'll have to all come back and we'll have some more conversations about this. Jennifer Abbott, Joel Backen, Elizabeth Davis, and Kevin McGarry, thank you, thank you for your comments here today. I just think it's such an auspicious day for all of this. I wanted to end with Amanda Gorman's poem, which is, the end of it is, When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn balloons as we free it. For there is always light. If we, if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. So thank you from the Commonwealth Club to our audiences online. 
to our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.